Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters, and I am the host, John Moorhead. I am joined today by uh, one of my repeat guests. I don't know if he even qualifies as a guest anymore. He's, he's just a, a frequent regular contributor here, Charles Randall Paul. Randy is the uh, founder and president of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. And Randy, before we started recording, we've already started having a great conversation, but welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here with John. It always is. Thank you for inviting me. Well, uh, I'm trying to think of when did I do this? Back in 2017. I wrote a, a book review of a fantastic book titled From Bubble to Bridge, Educating Christians for a Multi-Faith World by Marion H. Larson and Sarah L. H. Shady, and that's published by InterVarsity Academic, published in 2017. And I wrote that review for Cultural Encounters Journal, where I'm a regular contributor. I do the occasional essay, but uh, just with my time limitations, I try and regularly contribute book reviews. And uh, this was a fantastic book. Um, I, I had some concerns going into it. Just uh, they're using the term multi-faith um, on the title, but then when they got into it, it tends to be interfaith. I have some uh, appreciation for and concerns about interfaith approaches, but I was pleasantly surprised in getting into this book. Um, and I wrote a, a positive review and Randy came across the review and read that and then got a hold of the book and uh, got in touch with me recently and said, uh, this is a great book. Let's use it as the starting place for a conversation. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, Randy, so that we can continue our conversation. Okay, thanks. I, I love this book because it was written by evangelicals, um, for evangelicals, and it gave me a peek into um, what's going on in the pedagogical world of the evangelical movements around the world. I also loved it for the, for the methodology. Uh, the writers, each writer wrote a, a dense but, uh, but very clear essay. And then at the end of their essay, they had a confession of their own, a very short piece, but a, a confession of who they were and where they were in their, in, their, uh, in their journeys and how they came to the subject. I thought it was a remarkable um, method that made me really um, trust them more in, in mm -hmm. what they were writing. I, I, I think more books ought to be written that way mm -hmm. with a profession and then a confession, or maybe the confession up front in the profession. But uh, anyhow, thank you for that, for introducing that book to me. Uh, I also felt it was a great book because we're in a world right now where you know we have box the evangelical, broadly speaking, into this notion of a person who has a conviction that is exclusivist and a proselytizing, evangelical, evangelizing attitude toward the world, not out of arrogance, but out of sincerity, feeling the great commission of Christ has to be, you know, to, to go to all nations with the truth. Um, to put it bluntly, uh, it's, you know, if we just save people by giving them more food 
and more clothing, but they end up in very dire circumstances for eternity. Have we really helped them out if we haven't given them the bread of life, you know, the living water, right? Haven't having clothed them in the in the in the in the gowns of righteousness and the armor of God, right? So I I think the evangelical um, emphasis has been so criticized that we can't see how many literally billions of people around the world are in their own way evangelical. They feel their tradition, be it a even an atheistic tradition, uh, whatever it is, it's the right way forward. It's the best way forward. And if only the world would get it, everything would be better off. And so this is the kind of book that anyone can read and understand how a convicted community is facing the problem of pluralism in a world, in, an encroaching pluralism. I like to call it a contaminating pluralism. The Amish themselves are having a difficult keeping the, keeping the barriers up, right? Uh, everybody uh, is more or less connected and it's happening at a greater rate everywhere. You can go into the, the jungles of Northern, northern uh, Brazil and, and find people there, know what's going on, you know, out, outside. And so I just want to give that as context why I love this book, because it gave me a feeling this book could be understood by Muslims, Buddhists, communists in uh, China. If they got what was going on in this book, it's a very thoughtful piece of work that says, how can you have a conviction and, and a founding conviction you want your, your family and your friends and your community to maintain? and yet be in the world of, that's forced upon you of people with different convictions, not just different, but contradictory, and to put it bluntly, dangerous in your mind, dangerous convictions that would take you away from the pure truth that will lead you either to the eightfold path or uh, into the, the, the heaven with Jesus or whatever it is. Um, it's not just, oh, Let's celebrate the differences. No, it's differences that matter so deeply that I don't know how to, I don't know how to protect my loved ones from these differences. And so when you get what's going on in the world at this level, uh, we in America become almost relativists so many so often that we, you know, oh, what the heck? Just believe whatever you want to believe. That's not the way most of the world is still. Right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and so this has been a very helpful book. So that's my context for finding this book very rich and, and dealing with this issue of what I call contamination and purity, whether the purity of your message, the truth and the way of living it um, can be, can stand up and maintain itself in dialogue or con conversation, or is this book called, uh, in bridges of communication between people who disagree with your view of the world. And uh, um, so with that, I'll just say, um, I'd like to go and, and talk about this question from a, um, a standpoint of, I think probably the, the first thing I'd like to ask you as you read this book is, is there a psychological, I know you've spent years now thinking about evangelicals as, as kind of 
scientists of the scripture, if they can just understand and, and get the scripture right, and people just all understood and believed the scripture correctly, that would change the world, right? But you came at it with not a no, but, uh, and yet you, you added to that, hey, there's a psychological reality, a social psychological reality. The, the, the mind of an evangelical goes toward belief, but there's the heart that converts really, that, that, that changes you. And, and uh, so I'd like you to, first of all, critique this book um, with respect to the thing you talk about all the time is, did, the, did these teachers of evangelicals get to the issue of speaking to the heart change uh, I think you once mentioned a story about uh, one of your favorite um, uh, authors who talked about uh, an ethnic group of children. He was working with two ethnic groups of children that they thought uh, they'd really succeeded in bringing them together. Do you want to tell that story? Because uh, I think that's a potent story. Yeah. Um, first of all, I, I remember when you and I had that conversation where we were kind of characterizing each other's are the perceptions we have of each other's religious community. You as a Latter-day Saint, I said I kind of viewed uh, Latter-day Saints as uh, the, the artists of their faith, right? Because there's, there is the, the emotional aspect, the testimony, the art itself. You know, uh, you go to, uh, you know, Temple Square and, uh, and you have uh, art that's there, the architecture itself and so on. And, and you responded with that, you know, I, I see evangelicals as the scientists of, of their faith or of their scripture. And as you said that, I thought, man, if that's the case, and we have a pretty poor scientific method, because <laughs> there, there's a lot of, lot of different test results in terms of how to understand and apply that. So, um, but, but it's a very loose metaphor, but I, yes, I appreciate yeah, where you're is. coming from. Um, but basically, I, I don't want to disparage the need for education for evangelicals in a, in a multi-faith context. That's part of it. And I was there years ago when you and I first met and when uh, Terry Muck, who was originally on FRD's board, um, he yes, asked me to head up. upon him. He's still, yes. he's still kicking. Yeah, he is. He is. I know he's had some health challenges recently the last time I touched bases, but he he's still out there and and all that. Uh, he and I met years ago, and he said, you know, I'd like, I think you should be the one to hit up the evangelical chapter. Um, and I thought education was the way to go, that if we simply gave evangelicals the right biblical education, the right doctrinal education, pointed them to alternative Bible verses, all the evangelicals will go to the Bible. And this is why I, you know, I have issues with Latter-day Saints, or this is why I don't like Muslims or disagree with Muslims and that kind of thing. And what's interesting is those evangelicals who are wired more like I am for hospitality, neighborliness, diplomacy, we've got our own set of Bible verses too. And so it started to dawn on me that our, our looking at the Bible to justify an approach is really post hoc. That is, we, we find verses that already justify the psychological assumptions that we bring to the encounter already. So I wanted to understand that encounter, and that took me down the road of social psychology and social neuroscience. Now, that story you asked about, um, I discovered the work of the late Emile Bruneau. I, 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 unfortunately, he passed away 
I think a year or two ago of, of brain cancer, the irony of, of a gifted young neuroscientist catching this rare form of, of uh, brain tumor, he was a peacemaker. And before he was a neuroscientist, he had lived in different uh, areas of conflict around the world. And I don't recall which one where this story took place was, but he was working with youth trying to uh, help them resolve their disputes over ethnic differences. And they had been there for a while and thought they'd made some real inroads. And then one day a brawl broke out between the young boys and the fight was, was divided along what we would call tribal lines, right? Uh, us versus them. And after breaking it up, he tells the story that he, he just kind of stepped back and wondered, I, I thought we were making a difference amongst these young people and it turns out that when push literally came to shove, <laughs> that they were still just as divided as they had been previously. And so one of his passions was using neuroscience to help test peacemaking strategies. Are we really making changes in people's lives by what we're doing? Or are we running with our assumptions and we are, we are assuming that we're doing good and we haven't really touched uh, the situation at all. I remember in the early 1980s, I was in the United States Air Force and I would drive into work every day in Sacramento. And there was a group that would pick it every Friday morning, Grandmothers for Peace. And a bunch of, of very well-meaning young ladies with the gray hair and the signs, they thought there were nuclear weapons outside, then made their Air Force base and they were protesting. Now, I have no doubt that these ladies thought they were impacting the reality of nuclear weapons and the possibility of nuclear war in the 1980s. However, I, I am pretty sure they had no impact whatsoever. And so the moral of the story is we can be involved in, in activities that we think are making an impact that make us feel really good, but they're not really impacting the situation at all. How does this apply to what we're talking about in the book? I think uh, education is in the mix. But as you and I have discovered over the years in looking at social psychology, unless we deal with the human psyche, with the mind, with the heart, um, then educate, we can use all the educational methods that we want. Pedagogy alone is not enough to impact people, whether it's polarization over religion or politics or gun violence or, or anything else. So I, I think there are several missing elements in this book. It's a great book. They do some great things, as you've already said. But there are areas that, that we still have blind spots as evangelicals uh, in the realm of interfaith uh, engagement. Uh, I think we need to be looking more at these kinds of things. Yeah. OK. Well, Jonathan Haidt's work, of course, wasn't around when they wrote this book, but uh, uh, or at least I don't know. It was it au courant in, in the, when they wrote the book. And of course, it focuses deeply on the, what you just described, um, which is if you want to his basic idea is, is good social psychology, which is if you want to persuade anyone, they need to know you're persuadable. And, and so there's this wonderful irony that I think 21st century uh, persuaders or evangelicals of any stripe will uh, understand, which is uh, if you just have a dialogue of understanding um, and you leave out the, the deep level of desire for the other person to change and for you to be open to change yourself, um, that dialogue isn't going to connect with any real difference. Um, yeah, well, there'll be some difference of understanding, but as, uh, as Haidt said, if you know how the other person thinks 
and feels and learn about that, you will, if they're, from his point of view, if they're more liberal, then you'll talk to them about care and you'll talk to them about fairness. And if you're a, uh, and you're, and, and if you want to uh, be influential on a, uh, to more of a conservative person, you'll talk in terms of loyalty and authority and, and, and you can both speak that language and be able to hear each other better, but you have to learn it first. And this is one of the things I want to talk about in this book. One of the great sections talked about bridging speech. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea was we have civic and theological languages and um, that we've learned how to talk a common civil language, civic language. We know basically what words mean in a basic civic context. And if we, uh, if we make that analogy to religion as they did, um, it, it, it's a little more difficult. And this is what I wanna critique. They said, we, we need to be able to understand each other theologically and come to terms, so to speak, with common terms, common ideas, common beliefs. Um, so the idea was commonality right? You can only communicate when you know each other's commonalities. And that makes sense on one level. But we all know, I like to use the analogy, uh, Esperanto, uh, back in the 60s, the idea was if the whole world spoke Esperanto, world peace would exist, right? (laughs) Because everybody at last could have the same language. Well, the problem with that is language, as we all know, is not just words. It's deep cultural stuff, you know, it's all sorts of nonverbal communication. And it's the same word in, in Protestant life, grace, can be a very different world in LDS life, grace, right? And so uh, this goes across the board. And so I like to say that what we need and what you and I have learned, I think, is bilinguality. We need to immerse ourselves, not just from an empathic standpoint, but we need to take the time and really spend time. And this is hard to get into another religion, to uh, feel and ask ourselves what it would be like to be converted to that and have some kind of notion that you get the meanings of their words and the feelings behind their words. This is really hard work. This is learning a new theological language, if you will. Even though you think you're speaking the same words in English, you're not. And this work, I think, is going to be extremely important if you want to take it beyond religion to what we might call cultural bilinguality, too. And uh, we look at the Russians, we look at the Ukrainians, what are these idiots doing over there, you know? And um, it helps to say, well, they're wrong, but we we have a deep understanding of why they are wrong, right? Because we've got, we, we know enough about that culture. So I just wanted to critique the book by saying, um, I think it goes too short and too easy to th- say you can teach about another religion in the classroom. And it goes back to a critique of acad- academia in the last, I'd say 25 years. Can you say anything about another religion without being a converted member of that religion? Can you really talk about it 
about it without being in it. And of course, that debate has never been resolved. It's like opening the refrigerator. You know, I want to know if the light's on in the refrigerator. You can't, you can't do it without being a convert. And so there are enormous ethical issues there as well. But I just wanted to bring that problem up as a kind of one of the undergirding issues of this book is when we talk about bridging, we assume contact theory. If we just bring people together, well, they'll empathically understand that they're human. You know, they all need food. They all love their children. And will empathically understand that they, they want to, to live in a world of peace. So they'll do it. But we're back to Emile Bruno's problem. You know, no, they won't necessarily do it. Bridges can bring people together to, to also fight, right? And so that's one of the big issues that this book, I think, brings to the level of almost there. They, they talk about serious understanding, respect for differences that cannot be bridged. And they do that very well using uh, Levinas's work and, uh, and Buber's work. They bring us to the point where they, they encourage us to actually recognize another person might have a belief that's incommensurate with yours that you don't quite get, but you can still be in relationship with them. Where they don't go, however, is they never use the word enemy in the book, which Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount used, right? Bam, if you want to get near perfection, you've got to love your enemies. That's a very profound notion that we Christians have never quite cracked, I think. And, and we avoid the word. It's so loaded. Um, but it goes along with this idea of Jesus's great commission to the world. Go out and baptize people, bring them to me. There was no, oh, let's get along together. There was this idea that it matters to go one way. And um, the, the thing that this book lacks is giving the student the permission to go into that space and say, part of your wholeness as a social psychological person is a conviction that you desire to share in a very persuasive way. If you lie about that, then you can never be in a fully trustworthy position. It's like having a marriage, according to John Gottman, where you can never really talk about the hard things. Oh, we trust each other, but we never go there, right? You know, that's not real trust. And so what you and I have been working on for years, I think, is this, this deep problem of having the ability to literally with whatever the method is, it, you know, it can be uh, words or it can be actions, uh, loving actions, whatever it is, is to allow yourself into a relationship with someone where you're open to their persuasion and hope that they will be open to yours too. That deeper authenticity of potential conversion is always in the room. And when that happens and you trust each other with that in the room, then you are in a trustworthy relationship. You're, you're, you're allowing that possibility to be there. And from you and, uh, from you and me and the way we've dealt with each other, I think you as an evangelical would agree with this theological language, that the spirit of Christ or the spirit of love or the, the paraclete or the Holy Ghost is there when people are that authentic in loving with each other, even if they have these doctrinal incompatibilities. 
And so it's the relationship between rivals that contest the truth who are also allies sometimes and also friends. That, that it's the also that I think this book a little, it, it misses that you, if you go in these other directions too far, you can't be friends. If you go, you, you know, and, and so I wanted to bring that out that the richness of the Sermon on the Mount uh, allowing the enemy term to be brought in and the, the desire for, I think, Christ and his actions as a Christian to convert enemies into colleagues and friends is a, is a powerful notion of, of dynamic relationships. And I think in, in, I don't know if, is it the evangelical, I know the debate's been going on in the last 20 years, of open theism where a God who is sovereign above all, who, who has got all under his, his thumb can't be touched by human uh, persuasions. I mean, that's, we're, we're, we're nothing versus now I see even with the evangelical world, this idea of no, to be fullness of God, he is touched in all ways by every, so God is actually influenced in a sense by humanity. I love that idea of a negotiation, kind of an Abrahamic negotiation, you know, over the city of Nineveh or over your own soul or uh, no, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I, I, I think that this is coming to pass and it's a model that we can use in human life. If we can negotiate with God, we can negotiate with each other. And that can include the contest of what's right to do or what right. It can include that. Anyhow, my, my pitch is over. I, that was my biggest critique of the book is they didn't, they brought you in wonderful ways to be open to learning about and learning the difference, but they didn't take you to the point of how do you engage that difference in a deep, real way. That was a long monologue. In yeah, no, 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 that, that was great. I, I mean, a lot of things, I don't know if I can remember everything as it came to mind when I was listening to you, but, you know, I, I read a re another review of this book, I think it was in Christian Scholars Review this week in preparation for a conversation, and that reviewer also noted that they didn't provide any kind of theological grounding, that if you're writing for evangelicals and other Christians, you need to have that. And as I look at the literature and the things that have been written by evangelicals, we've suggested a number of things over the years, uh, neighborliness, hospitality, um, sometimes love of enemy. And, and I've noted those things too. But for me, all of those things flow out of what I think is the real New Testament grounding. And it's found in Philippians 2, this idea of cruciform spirituality that Paul is trying to resolve this dispute in the churches in Philippi. And he says, you need to have the same mind, the same attitude as Jesus Christ did, who being in the form of God emptied himself. He goes through a process of humility, even to the point of death on the cross. And he tells them that they are to emulate that. And things like humility, neighborliness, love for enemy flow out of that cruciform spirituality that is what Christians are supposed to live out. And so I, I would like to see uh, more of our multi-faith work grounded in this cruciform spirituality idea. Um, articulate. I, I issued a call for papers. I was hoping to do a book on cruciform spirituality and the implications for multi-faith engagement. And I only got one submission. And I think it's because it's such a foreign idea. 
um, that evangelicals just couldn't get their minds around what would that look like. We're, we're used to thinking there's a, an author, I've got his book sitting here on my, my desk as we talk. Uh, Gorman is his last name. He wrote a series of books on cruciform spirituality. I've done a podcast with him, Michael Gorman. Um, so he's done it in the area of theology and New Testament studies and Christology, but connecting the dots from that to multi-faith encounters just hasn't taken place yet for us. So I think that there's plenty more work that we can do. I, I was also struck when you're talking about the need to be bilingual. Um, there is a, a, a Methodist uh, scholar of new religions, Gordon Melton, and he encourages uh, folks that if you really want to understand religion in his context, new religious movements, you really have to learn to love it a little. And that is so difficult for people, particularly evangelicals, because we're so used to the idea of, they don't call them new religions, they call them cults, right? You <laughs> want me to love Mormonism <laughs> a little bit? You want me it. to love Islam a little bit? I can't. That's the doctrines of demons. I can't go there. But I think there's something valuable, valuable about learning to do that. And I think when you're able to do that, another crucial element comes in that wasn't touched on in this book, and that is developing trust. Um, you taught me one thing years ago as a part of religious diplomacy when you said what we do at the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy is when we're talking about another religious tradition, we always do it as if a member of that tradition was sitting in the room watching the conversation. And I've never forgotten that. And um, it, it is, it's very powerful. I recently gave a podcast interview to a, a progressive Christian minister in his podcast devoted to peacemaking. And he wanted to talk about my relationship with a Satanist, uh, Stephen Bradford Long. And even if that was just a private conversation, I knew it was public. I knew Stephen would see it. I knew other Satanists would see it. I, I wanted to do it as if Stephen was watching me in the moment have that conversation. And uh, it, it's very helpful because it, it makes me try to represent our relationship, his tradition, his experience, good and bad, uh, in an authentic kind of way. And what that does is it builds trust with Stephen and with other Satanists who see it. And there's been a fantastic uh, reaction to it. You know, when you and I had lunch with our wives uh, not too long ago, I think I made the comment that this religious diplomacy thing is not rocket science. It, it's really pretty simple stuff, even though it can be very difficult to do. But the reaction on the part of religious rivals is tremendous. That doesn't mean they're they're embracing our respective worldviews as a result, but their willingness to engage us, to trust us, to have ongoing conversations about difficult topics and areas of disagreement, that is there as a result of putting these kinds of things into practice. And I would like to see authors like this incorporate some of these elements as a complement to what they're suggesting in the educational arena. Yeah, I think what what you're bringing to my mind is the book is splendid in talking about kind of formational teaching of methods, a way of thinking and a way of doing when you're in a dialogue, right? Uh, attitudes and methods. Um, but it, it lacks the visceral, uh, what happens when you're with a person who really doesn't believe you and, and, and actually is looking down on your position how do you negotiate that so you can do something that will improve the situation without compromising your beliefs? And uh, 
um, what you just brought to mind uh, with the, the simple notion that you make a vow to yourself not to lie or to misrepresent or to spin another person's position. That is, a, there's a non-verbal reality. I, I believe in the human spirit and social psychological communications. People will trust you. It happens. They, 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 they it, and they, they almost value you more than their, than one of their own because you're so unique. You're a person out there who is not always pitching their view, but who will, and therefore you have object, quote, objectivity, and therefore you are a better spokesman for them than they are in the public sphere by saying, no, no, this is what they believe. I believe they're wrong, but this is what they believe. And they're sincere about this, right? You know, and, and so just, it's enormous what happened. You can be in a city council meeting talking about someone. You can be uh, in an academic meeting and talking about an academic rival. This works, like you said, this is not rocket science. This works all over the world and every place. And I don't know why we as humans have not learned this uh, well enough. I, I learned it on, on, the, uh, on the kickball field in eighth grade. When I remember a couple of, I just, this, this really did happen. I remember a couple of my buddies came up to me. We were talking between innings or whatever you did with kickball. And they started talking about another one of my, our friends. And it was very critical. And uh, for some reason, I just put my finger up and said, hey, guys, let, let's go ask him what he thinks about that. And boom, just end of conversation. Then we went on to something else. But they understood after that, that Randy Paul, I was Randy in those days, Randy Paul would not allow a conversation about them to happen without them there, without him going, hey, let's say what he thinks about. And all of a sudden I became this person, who just a guy who everyone, started to trust and like from that simple notion, right? And so it's, uh, it's, it's magic and it isn't, right? We all want that. We all want someone who won't say something different about us outside of our presence. And, it's, and I think it's a deeply theological uh, concept too. In, in any notion of love or truth or goodness um, or even beauty, there is, there is the kind of the un, irreducible realness of a, of, a, of a human person or God. That you, you really can't quite, in this part of the book and in, in, in doing Levinas's work, you really can't quite represent that person yourself. They have to be there, right? Yeah. And, and, and even when they speak, it isn't, you know, what, what you do know is you don't get it completely. And so I think theologically, we all are kind of mini gods, forgive me, that, mini gods to each other in the sense that we all can think about God and say, oh, we don't comprehend God. We might get answers to prayers or get little 
inspirations, but we're not claiming we understand, you know, the fullness of God. We, we get, well, it's that way between people too. I think there's a theological reality that we're all much more enormous than anyone can contain. And so it's untrue. It's just a lie to say we represent them fully here, in, let alone misrepresenting them, right? So I, I'm going off on a, on a tangent there, but it's always thrilled me to believe that the people I'm dealing with, C.S. Lewis, you know, his famous uh, little uh, essay on the, uh, the weight of glory, you know, the person you're dealing with, you know, someday you might find is a, uh, you would fear as an enormous devil or be so good and wonderful, you'd almost be you know, want to kneel and worship, you know, and, and yet that's just the guy you're dealing with or the girl you're doing groceries with, you know, his, his idea of the, of the massiveness of the human soul, uh, that God, in other words, wasn't being playing with trivial little people. <laughs> Christ's sacrifice was for enormous people, that he was going to enjoy in eternity, right? It, I love the idea in Hebrews where it says, because uh, everybody thinks Jesus is just this uh, altruist, right? The, the, you know, but it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, right? I love that. That there's a, there's this idea that, you know, you know, we forgive them for they don't know what they do. Another way of saying that is someday we're going to be amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and and through my power of love, I hope to influence them to to do that. Um, and and getting like you said, the cruciform, uh, the, the 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 cross in that sense, uh, bringing back to your idea, has always been the problem for the Latter Day Saints, mm. um, and and for me. Uh, and I'll I'll be very personal with you here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know if I have the spiritual guts and the love to really love my enemies. I don't know if I could gotten anywhere near what Jesus did. Right. And yet he calls us all to do that. Right. That's, he didn't pull punches. He didn't say, try, <laughs> you know, he called us to do this. And so I, I, I'd have, you know, I, I'm almost, you know, I'm, I got the gift for gab, but I, on this one, I'm almost speechless. <laughs> When I realize, would I um, be a pacifist to that point? Is that the way of the world? Should we let our, our nations go down to the oppressors, lay ourselves down in front of them, get killed? Because we believe so much in the next life that this is the only way forward. No aggression, none. You, you just lay down and give your life like, like Jesus did on the cross. I want to know how you feel about that level of Christian influence that, that I see in, in you talking about Philippians. Uh, we're, do you have the guts to actually preach that and do it yourself? Am I wrong? In other words, uh, there, there's the whole idea of uh, just war theory is resistance mm -hmm. to this whole idea, I think, of, hey, you know, it's actually the more powerful influence to to be Obi-Wan Kenobi at the end, you know, go ahead and hit me, bad guy. It's you, you only think you're taking me down. Right. And, and so where, where do you go with that? We live in a real world. Where yeah. Do you go? I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I mean, I, I used to be a big advocate of just war theory, right? The problem I think for evangelicals and just war theory is 
there are very few wars we're not willing to baptize as being justified. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, we're, we're and especially in America, we're so used to the church being so close to political power um, that we justify almost anything that, uh, you know, a president wants to do. Um, I do have great respect and have developed great admiration for the Anabaptist position on nonviolence, which I think is they would articulate differently than pacifism. Um, I appreciate the work of Walter Wink, uh, who has, has looked at Jesus uh, and done some writing on this idea of that Jesus wasn't necessarily pacifist. When he said, turn the other cheek, it was a, for, it was a form of resistance. It just wasn't armed, uh, aggressive resistance. It was, you're in a position of, of lesser power, uh, therefore, use what tools that you have so that you can respond appropriately and asymmetrical warfare. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> if you're going to get slapped, fine. Turn turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Right. Um, so I find great value in in that approach, and I think that that fits in well um, with this whole idea of cruciform spirituality. But I, I think we're called to take up our cross, and I don't know that. There are many evangelicals in America that are willing to do that. I think outside of America, evangelicalism is thriving, perhaps because they are adopting more of a cruciform spirituality. But but you mentioned uh, Jonathan Haidt previously. My my interest in uh, social psychology in this context began with Haidt's work. In the last few years, I've discovered some other work in social psychology. I did. A, I don't know if you saw the podcast I did with Kurt Gray a social psychologist on looking at the concept of moral harm, harm-based morality. And he has had some conversations and disagreements with Haidt, who, who articulates, as you mentioned, um, uh, this idea of moral foundations theory. And while I still find value in that, I'm also starting to appreciate more and more this harm-based spirituality idea. The reason why uh, in politics and religion, we tend to so strongly and viscerally disagree with people with uh, Republican, Democrat, uh, Evangelical, Latter-day Saint is because the idea is, I think that your ideas, your perspective, your stance, your doctrines are harmful. They produce real moral harm. And once you go there, it's very easy to say, if, if your ideas are going to produce harm to me, then you, the only way I can explain that is you must be a bad person. You're an evil person. You're you're at best ignorant. Um, maybe at even, best ignorant. You can allow ignorance. Yeah, you can allow that, but maybe even trying to foster this kind of harm. And this is an area that I don't think this book acknowledges the real depth of concern that motivates not just evangelicals to shy away from or have negative reactions to religious others, but it happened. It's a, this is a human issue. This is not just a, an evangelical issue. We all perceive those that we disagree with over these foundational issues to be capable of and engaging in acts of real moral harm. And then we get retrenched into these polarizing positions. And until we can recognize that this dynamic is going on and begin to extend that empathy to, okay, I don't think my position is harmful, but I see how you understand. I feel how you, the moral weight of your position then we're, we're, we're never going to get in a position to, to talk about the real differences, the real concerns that evangelicals have 
about pagans and Satanists and Latter-day Saints, let alone uh, our differences over some of the pressing social issues of our day, like gun violence and, and abortion rights and those kinds of things. Um, I, I find that a very interesting area of social psychology that, that I really think we need to, to, to explore more in terms of religious diplomacy and multi-faith engagement. I, uh, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I'm going to watch that podcast and get his work. What's his name again? Kurt Gray. I'll send you uh, the link and uh, to the podcast and to some of the, the work that he has done. Some very interesting work. Part of my preamble today was an attempt to bring Kurt Gray's notion uh, to the fore in, in the broad context of the world today. And I call it contamination. Mm-hmm. Um, contamination is dangerous. If you use a public health idea, right? Um, things can go viral and get and ruin the world, right? And I do believe many people believe in moral contamination, mm-hmm. deeply believe in it, including me on one level. Right, right, and you right. know what I mean? There is a reality of social influence that we can't, we can't deny. And uh, we can deny it, but uh, both science and religion get behind it, I think pretty right, strongly. Right. Um, and so I'm glad you brought up this, this idea. That's where, that's where the rubber meets the road, really, ultimately. It's that you could be, my father used to say, you could be so open-minded that you have a hole in your head. Right? In other words, there are limits to everything, right? We all, there are limits. You don't allow people to just go out and, and today shoot guns all over the place, right? We know that there's the, the Second Amendment has limits to it. And um, the, the same thing goes for any kind of ideology or religious belief or practice. And it's when we get to that limit point where we say in our work, John, it all, you know, the future of the world, we say this all the time, is based on whether persuasion can overcome coercion as the primary act in the world, right? Where we allow each other to engage on these deep ideological problems at the level of persuasion, not aggression and coercion. However, what you bring up is the real world problem of well, what if you believed in a child sacrifice? You know, what if you believed that uh, you shouldn't vaccinate anybody and 10, let's say 500 million people have already died of it, right? And you, you, you see, in other words, there comes a point in time where you have to say, oh, I've got to move into the coercive mode or I'm going to, it's all, don't I have to go into coercion? Don't I? And one coercion might be, we will not build a bridge, right? That's a forceful movement. We will not allow you into our lives, right? We're going to do everything we can to to keep you silenced, right? Um, What you're doing is so toxic that we can't allow it to be put on the screen, we can't allow it in our schools. We can see this right now with the whole woke movement on the left, right? But it's existed just as strongly on the right, right? right. We, we have our limits of what can be said because we know it could be influential and it'll screw up the world. And so what you've just brought up with this moral harm, I'm gonna have to think about it in terms of um, Heights work also, 
because uh, you're right. Every one of the virtues has a dark side, right? And it'd be very interesting to, for him to go back and see in his cross-cultural analysis what those virtues had a dark, what was the dark side of loyalty? What was the dark side of care or fairness, right? It's very interesting. Uh, and then come to those limit cases. And I don't know that we have an answer for that, John. That's one of those things that the diplomacy, the reason we started our group calling it the foundation for religious diplomacy versus dialogue is we knew that we come up at advanced edges and, and we had hoped that we could keep it in the realm of diplomatic persuasion, honesty, openness. But there are times when this spaceship earth, it's going forward when the, uh, the shipmates disagree about the destination and they disagree about how to sail the ship. And the issue is global warming. And enough of the shipmates are saying, the whole world's gonna go to hell if we don't do this. And if you guys don't help us, it's all going down. And the, and the guys who won't help say, no, no, you're wrong. It's wrong destinations, wrong method. Well, what do you do? Do you put them in chains? Do you put them down below deck so they don't get in the way? It's a very interesting problem, but politics and religion at this level or ideology come together in these real world William James motions, right? Where you, you're forced to make decisions now. You can't not do it. To do nothing is to make a decision, right? <laughs> and so um, maybe sometime in the future we could, we could get into it. It's, you know, this has been a great hour, but uh, we could get into that question of what what religions really say when you get to that limit, you know, what, what ideologies religions say about coercion when it gets to the limit of uh, world destruction or whatever it is, you know, the, the old idea of ethics used to be if, if you could kill one innocent person on the other side of the world <laughs> and save the world, the entire world, would you kill that innocent person, right? The variation a, of the trolley dilemma in psychology. Yes, the, the trolley dilemma, right. Yes. But if you bring that to a more real world political situation, it's, it's, it's a gripping problem. And uh, I think as we become a more unified planet, as the bridges are being built, so to speak, this kind of problem that you brought up that isn't in this wonderful book uh, is going to be needed to be brought right to the surface. Then we'll be talking Turkey, right? <laughs> then we'll all know, oh, this isn't just theoretical. And I think it's important for viewers and listeners to be aware of how, how significant this is for many evangelicals and even for many Latter-day Saints, if I've understood what's going on correctly, in that this is not just the, the perception of moral harm from others that we strongly disagree with is not just confined to concerns about contamination of the church. It's certainly there. It's contamination of the nation. Yes. Um, when you add Christian nationalism to the mix, this idea that this, you know, United States was called by God to be, you know, the shining light on a hill. And therefore, those that we strongly disagree with who bring an alternative vision about important social issues, they are perceived as bringing moral harm to the nation itself. And therefore, we're called to action. We can't allow this. We have to, you know, do what we have to do, take away their voting rights, maybe even an insurrection, uh, this kind of thing. So unless we understand this psychological mindset, it doesn't mean we have to agree with, I think that the insurrection was misguided. 
Amen. I, I don't Amen. think it should have taken place. However, they're worse than misguided. But anyhow, I, I don't think we can simply dismiss it and say it was a bunch of kooks, a bunch of idiots, a bunch of treason. That, that doesn't do it. That doesn't address the people who were sympathetic to the insurrection and yet didn't go to the right. Capitol on that right. day. We have to, as difficult as it is, try to empathetically understand those positions that we strongly disagree with in terms of moral harm so that we can address the, the real differences and concerns that were there. I think you're absolutely right. And what's, um, we can we can go up more into that. You have a cat behind you right I now. I do, you. that's okay. She's my frequent co-host. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it actually adds, oh, you've got more than a cat behind you right now. <laughs> <laughs> I see a young lady's face. That's right. there. She's not usually a co-host, but I'm glad she's there. It, it, it brings some uh, reality to the fact that we have other lives besides <laughs> on on uh, on the uh, net together. Yeah, well, let's. Um, yeah, I think I think this this the social psychological reality of the fear that is not psychological weakness but that is prudence, the fear of contamination that is not based on psychological weakness and inability to handle ambiguity, all that stuff. No, you have a, a worldview. It might be a wrong worldview, but you have a worldview that's very coherent. And there is a fear that, that not only you and your community are going to be harmed, but everybody's going to be harmed eventually. They just don't see it, right? And that is something that we need to face and communicate over and and I and engage in ways that are respectful. And then maybe we have some hope of at least extending the period of persuasion, right? right. <laughs> Until it, it, it has to go one way or another. And, and when it goes one way or another, we can also hope, I think. And there, this would come back with James Madison, the good old USA, that those who lose in a majoritarian vote will not end the relationship with those who win. And those who win will not end the relationship with those who lose. Otherwise, it could, it could really, really, really take everything down. I mean, it, it could be a disaster. So there is a sensitivity there of loving your enemy that comes in there and says, I, as a Christian, I can live with this, even though I think it's going to be a disaster. I, I can live with this because I have, and here's where Christianity comes in that other religions, and I'm pitching, I'm persuading, I'm pitching. It allows you, and it's, it's been a critique for ever since the enlightenment, enlightenment, if not before, it allows you to believe in another world. It allows you to say, this isn't the end. And that does allow you, ironically, to live in this world with imperfection, with, with things that you think are wrong. And uh, so it's for the joy that was set before him. It wasn't here. It was to come. Even the Christ was looking forward. So his cross wasn't the end. It was, it was a, a, a very potent method to bring joy to the children of men and women.
we have covered a lot of ground in our starting point in the conversation here. And I just want to refer folks again, they can look in the program notes and they will find a link to the book from Bubble to Bridge, Educating Christians for a Multi-Faith World by Marian Larson and Sarah Shady. And uh, I think I'll also put a, a link for folks if they want to look listen to that uh, podcast on uh, harm-based morality. I'll have a link to my review from Cultural Encounters and, uh, and Randy, it is always a pleasure to have these kinds of conversations. Oh, you're, you, you become a, a great uh, religious rival and friend. <laughs> and you have too, my friend. Thank you so much. Have Thanks for everybody for watching and listening until the next edition of the Multi-Faith Matters podcast.